Welcome to Happenings of Grace, a podcast dedicated to sharing the ways in which God works in the congregation of Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church in Williamsburg, Virginia. Today is uh, November 5th, so as I do every day, I start off with on this day in church history. November 5th, 1959, C.S. Lewis write, uh, writes a, in a letter, he says this, All joy, as distinct from mere pleasure, still more mere amusement, emphasizes our pilgrim status, always, always reminds, beckons, awakens desire. Our best havings are wantings. So Lewis would write a little bit more about joy in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, in which throughout his whole life he... Um, sometimes knowing and sometimes not really knowing that he was seeking something that he called joy, which eventually he would realize was Christ himself, and that Christ is our ultimate and final joy, and we can only have full satisfaction in him. So that, was, that is a theme of, of Lewis's life. Um, but today we are going to do a... I've been at like a 30,000-foot view. Now we're going to be at like a 60,000-foot view of the English Reformation. And we are going to actually skip a century today, and I will come back to it in some part next week. And I'm doing this a little bit thematically this week. So I'll cover the English Reformation, um, Puritans, and then uh, very quickly the Great Awakening. And that is a huge gap in chronological time, but uh, for the sake of my overall time, that's how I'm going to do it today. So let us begin with prayer. If Someone would like to open us, and then I will begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come together and learn of all your doings, many of your doings throughout the street. Pray you to open our hearts, soften them, give us ears to hear, and to learn about your great plan in Christ's name. Amen. So last week we covered the, uh, the Reformation, and we'll continue with that in England, specifically the English Reformation. So in the early 1530s, King Henry VIII, he wished to have a male heir, and his current wife at the time, Catherine of Aragon, uh, she only produced a daughter, Mary. And she did not produce a son, and Henry wanted a male heir. Um, at this time, the Church of England was part of the Church of Rome, um, and Henry... Uh, because he wanted a male heir, he wanted a, an annulment from his current wife. And Roman canon law says you can't do that. And Henry said, fine, whatever, I'm going to do it anyways. Um, he departed from Rome in the sense that he did not submit to the authority of the Pope anymore. Um, but now he created essentially what is called the Church of England. And Henry became the uh, supreme defender of the Church of England. Henry would be the head of the Church of England. The Pope clearly did, did not like this because it goes against the Pope's authority, and so what does the Pope do? What do you think? Excommunicates him. All right. But Henry now basically is now the head of a church, and he can go ahead with his annulment. He also had was being influenced by one Thomas Cranmer, who was hoping to enact reforms um, he, he is sort of a Protestant at this time, and so he kind of goes with Henry's plan. And uh, so Cranmer wants to make reforms, and uh, he goes with, with, the, with the plan that Henry wants. 
And so he, Henry gets his annulment with Catherine, and then he marries Anne Boleyn. And she has a child with Henry, which would be Elizabeth. But again, no son. All right, so let me go through all of Henry's wives very quickly. Uh, so, no son. Cranmer annuls that marriage, and Anne, unfortunately, was beheaded in the Tower of London. Next came Jane Seymour, who did have a son, Edward, but she, unfortunately, died in childbirth. Next came Anne of Cleves, who Henry had never met. They married, and he became unsatisfied with her, and some accounts say that... Um, he was hoodwinked into marrying her. A portrait was painted of her that made her look extremely flattering. And when he saw her for the first time, he was not flattered and eventually annulled that marriage. And then came Catherine Howard, who was having her own affairs, so Henry had her beheaded. Finally came Catherine Parr, who outlived Henry, but no heir. And Henry would die. He would, um, and later, later in life, he would become extremely overweight, which... Um, some scholars think that contributed to his early demise. But he had three surviving heirs, Edward, Mary, and Elizabeth. And these three would really shape the Reformation in England. So let me go through those three very quickly. So Edward was very young when he took the throne. He was six years old. So in theory, he was the king, but in practice, he didn't really rule. There was a council that really made decisions and Cranmer was part of this, and that's when he started to enact his Protestant reforms. And this is where we get the, the initial Protestant Church of England. Um, he removed anything Catholic from the churches and the theology. He started to draw up the 39 articles for the governing of the church. And he was about to have them passed in, in the parliament. So remember, the Church of England is still a state church. He was about to have them passed when Edward died. Then Mary comes to power. And what do we know about Mary? She is Catholic. She was also called Bloody Mary. She wanted to get back at the Protestants for having allowed Henry to humiliate her mother, Catherine Aragon, who was Catholic. She undid all of the Protestant reforms. She even rounded up and executed Protestants and had Cranmer killed. Now, Cranmer's story is very interesting if you get a chance to read about him, but I don't have time to go into that. So... Um, for this, for killing the Protestants, she has been called Bloody Mary. Um, the Protestants in England became known as the Marian Exiles, and they fled England, and many went to Geneva, where Calvin was. Um, there is a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs, and that is written uh, basically to lift up the Protestants who were martyred under Mary and to remember them. Also had a very strong uh, influence on the English Reformation and the Protestant zeal, if you will. And so Mary was not very favored at all by the Protestants. The exiles went to Geneva and studied over under Geneva. And I said last week, they all went to Geneva. They studied under Calvin, was influenced by him. And then when they were able to, they went back to their lands and started spreading the Reformed theology. Paul? Like how widespread was the Protestant I think she killed 800 Protestants or ministers, and um, Cranmer had enacted reforms as best he could at most levels, and Mary undid all of that. And um, it was spreading, but it would become greater under the next monarch, Elizabeth. So <clears throat> uh, 
Mary would die and Elizabeth would, came to the throne and she was Protestant. So you've got Church of England that was Roman in nature, but it was the Church of England. And then it goes Protestant under Edward. Then it goes back to Roman Catholicism, uh, submitting under the Pope, under Mary, and then back to Protestantism again under Elizabeth. Okay. Um, she restored Protestantism to the land. She reinstated many of Cranmer's reforms. Um, and, but for a group of people, she did not go far enough. So um, in the Church of England, the Anglican Church, if you will, some people joke that it's uh, Catholic light um, because there are many, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, aspects of Roman Romanesque things like the clerical garbs, uh, some of the understanding of the sacraments, um, the form of government, and a group of people called the Puritans said, well, no, you've not reformed the church far enough. We want to reform it even more. So they wanted to get rid of any Romish tendencies. They wanted a pure and true reform. And originally the term Puritan was a term of derision but they adopted it and accepted the term. Um, and so their goal was to uh, reform the Church of England. However, Elizabeth, her being the head of the English church, uh, she wasn't too fond of Puritans. And in 1593, she passed the Act Against the Puritans, which said that anyone who did not attend Anglican services, so the Puritans would start, they would hold their own services, and they did not attend the state church, Anyone who did not attend Anglican services and held their own meetings was to be placed in prison until they would conform. Since conforming was not an option, a group of Puritans left for the Netherlands for more religious freedom, and this group would eventually come to America and set up the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Um, that Their name, Puritans, those who came to America, it's a bit of a misnomer because uh, Puritans wanted to reform the church. They didn't want to leave it. They wanted to reform it. But those who came to America were technically separatists. They didn't want to reform. They wanted to, they could, they wanted to break away and practice their faith how they thought, how they saw fit. What happened to the Puritans that did not leave? I mean, were they all, like, in the Netherlands? Or no. Uh, did some of them stay? Many of them stayed in England. They were sit, sat in jail for a long time. I'll cover that a little bit more next week. Um, but... One guy who was in jail for a very, very long time who has um, one of the most published books in England, English, is John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress. This is a cool little memento I have. I'm not going to pass it around. It's not in the best shape, but I, this is an 1848 edition of Pilgrim's Progress. And I got it from the used bookstore Mermaid Books that was, used to be down in downtown CW. So it was kind of a cool find that I found. But many Puritans were jailed because they would not conform. And that, that, goes, that would come even after Elizabeth. And I'll try to talk about that a little more next week. So the separatists, they, go to the Massachusetts, they start the Massachusetts Bay Colony in, in America. One of the founders and governors, was his name was John Winthrop. If you ever read his writings, it's very, very interesting how they try to navigate this line of church government and you know, church power. But he called the Massachusetts Bay a city set on a hill. And he saw that they had a, were establishing a covenant with God to be in this new nation and that they had to live correctly according to the word and according to the scriptures. And if they didn't, 
their example of this setting up a new nation, if they failed, you know, God could bring judgment. It wasn't, it's not a good thing for us to fail. So they saw themselves as a light unto the world in this new nation, whether you agree with that or not. That's how they saw themselves. Um, the community in New England, where they would set an example of communal charity, affection, and unity to the world. And then here's what Winthrop says. If, if the Puritans fail to uphold their covenant with God, quote, we shall be made a story and a byword through the world, end quote, of God's judgment. So they see themselves as a light to the world, setting up this new colony in America. The Puritans, today we see them, or in common culture, they are considered prudish, hypocritical, and very legalistic. A lot of the, their perception today comes from Nathaniel Hawthorne and his book, The Scarlet Letter, and the play The Crucible, which we told the Salem witch trials in the con context of McCarthyism. Um, another misconception comes from a famous sermon, which I'll talk about in a little bit, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, from Edwards, uh, which speaks of hell and judgment. From this sermon, people like to make the case that Puritans were all fire and brimstone preachers. Um, however, the Puritans would preach through the whole counsel of God, including hell and judgment, grace, mercy. Um, they didn't shy away from difficult biblical truths. Um, and they were not prudish because they all had tons of very large families. They would preach and preach and preach, and they wrote a lot. So when I first started this, this was back in 2012 when I went through this, and back in 2012, before a lot of, uh, they were already going down that path, but a lot of these old books were being digitized, and a lot of them are digitized now. But back in 2012 and earlier, there was this product called the Puritan Hard Drive. It contained over 12,000 resources from the Puritan writings, and it just had PDFs and Word documents. And do you guys know how big PDFs and Word documents usually are? Like two to five megs? Um, 12,000 resources that fit on a 150 gig hard drive. So that is over 100 gigs of text documents from Puritan writings. So that gives you kind of a, an example of how much they wrote. Um, they would write sermons, devotionals, systematic theologies, journals, Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress. And so they would last, the, the, how scholars term Puritanism would last probably about 100 years or so if you're getting into the, the ultra-technical uh, definition of a Puritan. They would, they would have a major impact on the shaping of America, especially in New England. They would set up systems of government, usually representative, and they would set up churches. And... Um, the last Puritan, they call him a Puritan. I don't know if he's technically a Puritan. Is Edwards, Jonathan Edwards. So I will talk about him. But first, I need to take a step back and show what impacted the Puritans themselves. So we're going back to the English Reformation. And how did we get the English Bible? So let me go through that story. So William Tyndale. <clears throat> He wanted to place the English scriptures into the hands of the common folk. Um, after receiving his ordination, he once expressed his frank amazement at the ignorance of the clergy. When a fellow priest resented this observation, Tyndale replied, If God spares my life before many years pass, I will make it possible for a boy behind the plow to know more of the scriptures than you do. <laughs> 
He soon learned, however, that such an undertaking was not welcome in England. After study in Oxford and Cambridge, he was forced to flee to the continent, and there he would live and labor and print the New Testament. And early in 1526, he began smuggling the first copies of the English New Testament into England. In the following years, Tyndale translated portions of the Old Testament and brought out an improved edition of the New Testament. Church officials continued to hound him, however, and in 1536, he fell into the hands of the Roman Church. After 17 months in prison, he went to his death at the stake, and his dying prayer was, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. During his months of imprisonment, another Cambridge graduate and reformer, Miles Coverdale, had published the first edition of his complete translation of the Bible into English in 1535. The edition was basically Tyndale's work supplemented by Latin and German versions, but his, his was the first complete Bible translated into English. Then a year after Tyndale's death, the Matthew Bible was printed. <clears throat> it was the work of another English reformer, um, but he didn't actually give his real name because he didn't want to get caught. Um, this Bible was a well-edited compilation of Tyndale and Coverdale's work. So, he's, so, so the, the, the new editions or translations coming out are building off of the work of the previous guys. Henry VIII, he authorized that this Bible revised by Coverdale and would be called the Great Bible. And this would be uh, printed and read throughout the realm. And so Tyndale's dying prayer was actually answered in part because now the King of England is authorizing an English translation to be read throughout England. Um, however, the reading was limited. There were regulations limiting the reading of the, of the scriptures to wealthy merchants and aristocrats because they didn't want, you know, the people coming up. Yes, Jay? I thought the Great Bible was the one that was authorized to be put on the pulpit so anyone could walk into the church and read it. Uh, I'm not sure. It, I know it was limited, so it wasn't like we could just pick it up and take it home and do our things with it. Yeah. Um, okay, so we're at the Great Bible, and then we get to um, what's going on. So the Southern access to Scripture created a much spread excitement, so much to Henry, so he didn't like all this excitement that was being generated by this. All right. So Miles Coverdale, who had the Coverdale translation, um, he was part of one of the, the English exiles that left England during Mary's reign and went to Geneva. And the Genevans compiled a new, a new translation in English during the, reign of Catholic, uh, during the reign of Mary. And this was called the Geneva Bible, published in 1560, printed during the early years of Elizabeth's reign, and she would accept it when she came to power. Um, and the, the importance of the Geneva Bible is that it's considered one of the first study Bibles that we have. I have a facsimile of one. So I'm going to pass this around. Go ahead and try to read it if you can, but I'm going to pass it around. So while I pass it around, I'll talk about it. So let me read you a long quote from a scholar who wrote about the Geneva Bible, and I think it'll explain why it was very important to the English Reformation and the Puritans, and actually how it impacts us today. So, the Geneva Bible, it pioneered several innovations in content and translation. The Old Testament translation is a thorough revision of the Great Bible, especially in those books which Tyndale had not translated. Such books had never been directly translated from the Hebrew into English. 
The existing version of the prophetical books and the poetical and wisdom literature of the Old Testament was carefully brought into line with the Hebrew text and even with Hebrew idiom, the way that uh, he, the Hebrews spoke. The Geneva Bible changed several aesthetic appearances. It used readable Roman typeface. It was the first to use numbered verses. It was printed in small quarto editions and was sold at an affordable price. Also, it was the first to use italics for words added by the translators, which were designed to make the text more comprehensible to English readers. The Geneva Bible was, in a real sense, the, the world's first study Bible. It provided annotations in the margins of the text, explaining, commenting, and interpreting the meaning of the text for the reader. These brief annotations were designed to help the reader with all the hard places and aid ones in which words were obscure. Also, the Geneva Bible included prefaces to books of the Bible, chronological charts, maps, illustrations, over 33 of them, and a dictionary of over 950 proper names at the end. And the scholar concludes, while such innovations are common to Bible readers today, in the 16th century, they were unprecedented. So a completely new uh, Bible that, Josh, don't hog the thing. <laughs> Jeez. <clears throat> So obviously the printing press has a great impact on this. The, um, remember I said that the Reformation really started because they have access to the Greek text and now to the Hebrew text. <clears throat> and then it takes a, a bit of a time for that really to trickle down and then those texts be accessible and then translated into English and really get that with the Geneva Bible. What else is important about the Geneva Bible? Well, it was very popular, and King James hated it. <laughs> so, why did he hate it? For one, for, there are a couple of reasons. One reason, he saw church government as uh, Episcopalian, where uh, church officials should be bishops, um, but that has a very Presbyterian bent to it. Um, another reason, though, the marginal notes. A few marginal notes in there say that the king himself is also under the law. And James also held to a divine right of king's view, which the Geneva Bible did not hold to. And so King James did not like the Geneva Bible, and so he authorized the King James Version in 1611. So in part why we have the King James Bible is because he did not like the Geneva Bible. And the Geneva Bible was the most widely distributed Bible in English and was the one that Puritans carried to America. Paul. By like modern standards, how accurate were these like initial translations? Yeah, um, you know what? Send me an email because I have a really cool article you could read. But some of the scholars, uh, when, they're, when they're looking at the text of the Geneva Bible and then they look at today's translations and they look at the Greek text and the Hebrew text, they say it's, it's, very, it's very good. There are some things we learn more as we get more Greek texts in the 19th century. Um, but for its time, it's very good. And even for today, it's pretty, it's pretty decent. The Bible of the Puritans, really, Geneva. How many of you heard about the Geneva Bible before this morning? Okay. How many of you heard, understood its impact before this morning? Okay. All right. So a little bit forgotten and obscured because of the King James Version. All right, so continuing with my theme of Puritanism, 
we'll look at what some scholars consider the last Puritan, depending on how you define Puritan, and probably America's greatest theologian, even though the British say we weren't America yet, we were still British, but I'm going to claim him as American, Jonathan Edwards. <laughs> <laughs> Born in 1703 in Connecticut, entered Yale College at just the age of 13. So Yale, Princeton, Harvard, these schools were actually started as seminaries first. Over time, they would become liberal and depart from their founding ideals. Um, Edwards, when he was a, a young man, he studied science. For him, it pointed to God's beauty and harmony in creation. Eventually, Edwards would graduate and get a master's, graduate that, and then he would come to pastor his grandfather's church in Northampton, Massachusetts. So through his preaching, he would actually spark the Great Awakening. And so uh, the main figures in the Great Awakening are Edwards, Whitfield, and the Wesleys. Um, if you know about the Great Awakening, I'm not going to spend too much time on it, but it, it's a huge revival in New England in the 1730s. Um, and during this time, Edwards became acquainted with the great preacher and orator George Whitfield. He was, he was a, basically an itinerant preacher, and he was on tour from England. He would go through the 13 colonies and preach. He actually preached at Bruton Parish here, and they have a George Whitfield Day down there. It's December 13th or the 15th. And one of the CW interpreters will dress up in garb and, and read one of Whitfield's sermons. So if you get a chance, go down there. It's, it's, it's interesting to hear the, you know, I always wonder, is this guy converted? Is he a real believer? I know he's just reading in his, in his historical interpreter, but I always wonder about the, own, the guy's own heart. But that's an aside. But anyways, if you get a chance, uh, I think it's a, December 13th or December 15th. That's when Whitfield actually came through Williamsburg and, and preached. Um, he had a, an incredible preaching voice. Some, <clears throat> so Ben Franklin had wrote about Whitfield and his voice. And some estimate that Whitfield could preach loud enough for 50,000 people in a seven-acre field to hear most of his sermon clearly. I don't know if that's hyperbole or not, but apparently he did have an incredible voice. So when Whitfield was in the colonies, revival sprang up again in 1741. And then it's during this period that Edwards preached his most famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Um, this is where we get the misconception that Edwards and Puritans in general were all fire and brimstone preachers. Edwards was not preaching anything new. He was warning his congregation about the wrath to come if they did not um, accept Christ as their Lord and Savior. Someone did a study on Edwards and his writings, and he wrote, um, Yale has compiled most of his works together in a 26 volume set, 26 volume set. That's a lot of writings. But someone did a word study, um, and the number one word Edwards used was sweet, which was usually in um, connection with God himself and his, his relationship with God. And so Edwards, um, not a fire and brimstone preacher only, but one who ex personally experienced God's grace and his mercy, but also saw his beauty and the joy that God could bring and give him. So number one word, according to a study, was sweet. From the revival in 1741, he writes his work, The Religious Affections, a treatise on Christian conversion. He basically says that experiences, good feelings, or even a mere statement of faith does not prove one's salvation. Salvation is only known by God, truly, and to outsiders can be evidenced over time through changes in character and in good works. 
His reasoning is during the revival of this time, he witnessed many people weeping over their sins or feeling bouts of joy only to return to their uh, consistent sinful lifestyle. He even believes during such revivals, the devil and his minions will come and deceive many. He sounds a note of caution on relying too much on experience and sends a call for true discipleship instead of just merely trying to get people converted. I think it was, was it over the summer there was that, I don't know if you guys heard about that, um, what is it? Asbury. What, Asbury, yeah, yeah, yeah. So when I was reading about this, I went to Edwards Religious Affections to kind of like help me understand what was going on down there. Um, and I, I really think you have to kind of wait and see what kind of people come out of these experiences. Edwards, like I said, was a prolific writer. Oh, did I put 20 volumes? That's wrong. That's 26. Um, can I just make a quick comment? Yeah. I totally agree, you know, that, about what you said about seeing long-term fruit. So at the same time, he was skeptical of mere emotionalism. In his writings, there is a deep appreciation of deep emotion and joy in God as well. So I think he has a great balance of, of those two pieces. He also has an incredible logical mind. Um, if you've ever read any of his works, um, he, he's able to anticipate the arguments from the other side and he can refute them, but that at the same time he's able to bring um, hardcore application to people's lives and really help them to see the glory and beauties of God. Um, for me, it's been a, a huge impact on how, um, how to view God and that, you know, for God, his glory is uttermost, and everything is towards his, his glory. Uh, C.S. Lewis is actually impacted by him, and uh, John Piper, you can see streams of similar thought between those gentlemen. Um, one of his other writings, he kept a journal called the Miscellaneous, which are just daily observations on life, nature, or questions he wanted to ponder. Um, he constantly had ideas, and because he didn't want to forget anything, so he, was, he would travel around on horseback a lot, and he would carry slips of paper, and when he would, while he was writing, if an idea came to him, he would jot it down and then pin the slip of paper to his shirt, and then transfer the idea of paper into his journals. So he was writing always thinking a lot and didn't want to um, lose any of his ideas. The sticky notes. Sticky notes. <laughs> Literal sticky notes. Sticky notes. I can't imagine writing yeah. this. Yeah. <laughs> Back is very safe. Yeah. <laughs> um, he also kept what is known as a blank Bible, where on the left or the right would be a page of scripture, and on the other side would be a completely blank sheet of paper, and he would write his commentary on corresponding pages of scripture. So he actually would cut up his Bible and insert blank pages into it. But not like Jefferson. Not like Jefferson, no, no. Um, unfortunately, so Edwards was pastoring for quite a while in his pastorship. Um, he was dismissed over mishandling of the practice of the Lord's Supper, and he would move out to Stockbridge to evangelize the, the Indians there. He also worked The Life of David Brainerd. Have you ever, anyone ever read that? That is a very, very challenging book. And by that, I mean David Brainerd um, was a very young guy in his early 20s, and he had incredible zeal for the Native Americans in northern uh, in New England. And his zeal almost killed him. Actually, it did kill him. 
He almost didn't take care of himself because he cared so much about converting and preaching to the Indians. Um, Edwards would compile David's Brainerd, Brainerd's journals, um, edit them, and then have them published. And this work would influence missions on, in the 19th century, which I'll go over in a couple weeks. Um, so he moved out to Stockbridge, but before he did, he was asked by one Samuel Davies to become pastor of his church in Virginia. Yeah, anyone know that name? All right. A little bit of local history now. He was a Presbyterian minister born in Delaware. He was perhaps the first Presbyterian pastor to gain a preaching license as a Presbyterian in Anglican, Virginia. So <clears throat> state church here in Virginia. I will talk about a little more about Presbyterianism in, in the colonies next week. But um, Davies was asked by a basically a, almost a house church that were studying the scriptures for themselves. They needed a pastor. Some guy came down. He came down for a little bit, but he couldn't stay for a while. And eventually Davies came down outside of Mechanicsville, and he would pastor around there. But before he did, he went up the street here to CW to the governor and asked for a license. Um, the, the Anglican Church and the governor, they were Baptists here and Presbyterians. They would preach without a license, and that kind of like irritated the officials. And so Davies thought, well, maybe if I go ask for a license, they'll kind of leave me alone kind of thing, and I'll try to do this the right and proper way. And they respected him for it. His nickname is the Apostle to Virginia. Um, Presbyterianism from, from Davies and his influence would begin to spread. Eventually, he became the president of the College of New Jersey in Princeton. I'll, I'll get there in a second. But he pastored outside of Mechanicsville, which is called Pole Green. And you can go up there today. That's a picture I took. <clears throat> there is a his, little historical site up there, a little church. Uh, people now just hold weddings there. But there, the original foundation you can still see. There's the original foundation of the little house that the house church met in who called Davies. Um, because of Davies trying to work with the government in order to, to preach and teach, there, he's um, had a huge impact on religious liberty, in, especially in Virginia. And they have a timeline of bricks just on a you know, pathway like this of the development of religious liberty in Virginia. And Samuel Davies' fingerprints are all over that. And you can learn more about Davies right down the street at the Presbyterian Meeting House. This is behind the Capitol building. So if you're facing the Capitol on Dog Street coming from the college, so the college is there, the Capitol's here. The Presbyterian Meeting House would be where the piano is in the back on the right. And you go in there and it has an, a, a motion sensor and it'll begin to um, play a recording and talk about Davies and how um, he uh, impacted uh, religious liberty in uh, Virginia. And there's a little plaque about him, but his name is also associated with Patrick Henry because Patrick Henry sat under his preaching as a child and learned, learned his oratory skills from Davies. Um, and so CW, of course, uh, plays the American Revolution angle, not so much the um, preaching of the gospel angle. Um, but Davies is um, in direct connection with Edwards. And Davies recognized Edwards' preaching and his great mind and asked him to come to pastor in a church in Virginia. Edwards turned it down. He went to Stockbridge, which is a little about, kind of, this is kind of like frontier land. 
in Massachusetts to preach to the Indians there. Uh, he would stay there for a few years, and then he would be asked to become the president of the College of New Jersey, which would eventually become Princeton. Um, a few weeks into his term, though, he was inoculated from smallpox, and he died from the inoculation at the age of 54. And who do you think followed him up as a president? Samuel Davies. And he would die very quickly in his term. So some of the early presidents at Princeton, they died off pretty quickly. It's a bit of a curse or something. I don't know. Um, but Princeton, and I will talk about Princeton and its impact on, on Presbyterianism, especially in America. But Princeton started as a college, and then they would start Princeton Seminary, Princeton Theological Seminary. And um, some pretty famous people in there were presidents. John Witherspoon is one. Um, Charles Hodge, know that name. Anyways, but we're not there yet. Next week. <laughs> how did Yale get the rights to like publishes? How did they get the rights? Yeah, I do not know. An interesting thing about that, though, is the editor in chief of that volume was actually R.C. Sproul's mentor. And they told him that he was, and he's an excellent Edward, Edward scholar, but they said he was way too biased because he was a Presbyterian minister, and they said, you can't, edit, you can't edit this, so they cut him out. I don't know what that would have changed. Maybe the commentary in the editions, I don't know what that would have changed. Um, but he said, okay, fine. So he just started to write his own biographies and things on Edwards. But there's a little interview with, in, about how he laments that he was kind of cut out from that. And he did, he did a lot of initial work that they built upon. Um, anyways, I'm getting off track. Um, let's see. Okay, so back to Edwards. Many of Edwards' descendants became prominent citizens in the United States, including Vice President Aaron Burr, Princeton College Presidents Timothy Dwight, Jonathan Edwards Jr., Merrill Edwards Gates. Jonathan Edwards is also an ancestor of the First Lady Edith Roosevelt, the writer O. Henry, the publisher Frank Nelson Doubleday, and the writer Robert Lowell. Edwards' descendants have had a disproportionate effect upon American culture. His biographer, George Marston, notes that, quote, the Edwards family produced scores of clergymen, 13 presidents of higher learning, 65 professors, and many other persons of notable achievements. He has a lasting impact um, through his preaching, teaching, but also um, through his discipleship of his children, and his wife, Sarah, she also has incredible accounts of experiences with God and grace and how she supported Edwards and how Edwards supported her and they loved each other very much. The struggles they, they dealt with, um, some, I think some of their children died as adults too. Um, but their writings clearly impacted their children and um, their faith carried on to their children, and et cetera, et cetera. And um, not saying that all these descendants were Christians, but clearly had an impact on American society. America's, I think, greatest theologian, um, great impact through his descendants, um, the Great Awakening, of course, through his preaching of the gospel and converting sinners. Some scholars are able to connect the Great Awakening, so Edwards and Whitfield and the Wesleys, and I'll get to the Wesleys next week, where this is the first time where the 13 colonies, because they're all experiencing some aspect of this revival, they all, for the first time, start to see each other as one or unified. Not like we see today, but 
in the past, really before this great awakening comes, they were all they were all their own little kingdoms, if you will. And through a shared experience, some scholars have said this actually uh, begins to form the revolutionary spirit. And King George himself called the Revolutionary War a Presbyterian War. All the Scotch-Irish in the, in the ranks. Um, and all the Presbyterian ministers preaching from the pulpit with guns in their hands. But I'll talk about that hopefully next week. Yeah. So um, I tried to trace through the English Reformation how we get the English Bible and then the Bible of the Puritans and its high scholarly work and its, and its dedication to the Scriptures and the original text the commentary notes contained in it that would influence the Puritans of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, which, in a sense, that would impact Edwards himself. And then Edwards' preaching led to the Great Awakening. You see the theme I'm trying to draw here? Um, I had, man, I feel so bad that I just went so fast over that. Um, yeah. Anyways, any questions? Paul? <laughs> Just curious, like the whole King James only movement. <laughs> <laughs> like the, the whole point of that is that it was the first English translation. Or it's not the first English. It wasn't, though. Not clearly not that case. I'm not a KGB only. I mean, this guy could help you, actually. They actually, they actually claim that there's a song that says that it was purified seven times. There's like seven English translations, and it's the seventh one that was purified. There's a song somewhere that is a proof text. Talk to him. He came out of that stuff. Yeah. Uh, real quick, so the, the, the Puritans that went to the Massachusetts Bay Colony, I think, for the Netherlands and such, were they excommunicated from the, oh. from the Anglican Church? I don't know. That's a good question. No, they left because they couldn't they could, cause practice. Because they got, they got um, permission. Some, a lot of them have permission to go. Yeah, they get the charter and everything, but I, I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know. Brian thing. Probably would know that. Yeah, he was Davies for years. Yeah, that's the other. I wish Brian. So. And he also preached Davies' Christmas sermon here one year. So yeah, Brian is our Davies expert. So ask questions about. I actually interviewed Brian about Davies, and uh, my original goal was to put some sort of mini documentary together. I've I've also interviewed a guy, the managing editor from Log College Press. I don't know if you've heard of them. Um, they publish. <laughs> Dead Presbyterian works. That's their tagline. Um, it's yeah. Um, so I actually have hours of interviews and information about Davies from Brian and this other gentleman that I hope to put together somehow to share. I haven't quite figured out how I'm going to do that yet, but so Davies has been an interesting uh, character for me because uh, he's kind of forgotten a little bit, especially in Virginia. So yeah, he was he was young. I don't remember how old, but. I, I don't remember, no. There's also, I'll have to go look it up and send it to you, but there's, a, there's kind of an eerie thing about his death, too. He, like, he kind of knew he was dying and preached it in his final sermon or something like that. It was kind of, I don't, I don't know, it's kind of weird. Okay, I'm running way out of time. Any final questions? All right, could someone pray for us, please? Sure. Lord, thank you for this, for this time of learning. Thank you, Lord, that... You not only want our, our souls uh, to be saved, but you want our minds to be refreshed, educated, and informed. And we just thank you for this time together, Lord. 
Jesus' name.